Welcome to this week's Parsha Share. It's a pleasure to be back, and it's Parsha Svayishlach. And this week's Share is sponsored by Lillian and Aaron Fuchs and Jason Fuchs in memory of Lillian's brother and Jason's uncle, Jack Julius Glatter. Yaakov Yehuda ben Yitzchok, Zichon Levrocho's yard site, is on the 14th of Kislev. Parshas Vayishlach is a continuation, in a sense, of Parshas Vayetze, in that it continues in the st- with the story of Yaakov and um, his travails, his troubles, his problems. Next week, Vayeshev, that continues as well. But then we go to the story of Yosef. So Parshas Vayishlach begins with the fact that Yaakov Avinu has returned, is returning to Eretz Kanaan. He's spent some time with Lovon. Um, he's got married, four wives. He has uh, now 12 children and he's returning and he's going to meet his brother Esau, who, as you know, from uh, last week's parasha and the parasha before that, uh, Esau had sworn to kill his brother because he felt he'd been done out of the, of the brachus, of the blessings that he should have received from his father. So, uh, that's what he felt. Of course, that wasn't the case at all. And that's uh, a share I've given on another occasion. You can search that one up. But now he's coming back and he decides on various different tactics as part of an overall uh, strategy that that he's going to uh, um, take in order to encounter his brother and make sure that he survives. And if not all of them surviving, at least part of the family will survive. But one of the things he does is he sends a whole bunch of gifts. He dispatches messengers. That's how the Parsha begins. Vayishlach Yaakov Malochim. And in fact, Rashi says, Malochim Mamish. They were real Malochim. Why they had to be real Malochim is also a shear for another time. But he dispatches these messengers and they have a script that they have to read out almost, I guess, learn by heart. And that they're going to be telling Esau when they meet up with him. And Esau is coming towards Yaakov Avinu with an entire battalion of warriors, of fearsome warriors, and that they know because uh, that information has been conveyed to them. They have their, uh, their trackers up front who have come back with this intelligence, and they know that Esau is accompanied by these fearsome warriors. And this is the message, or at least part of the message, that Yaakov Avinu conveys to his brother. And this is Yaakov telling the messengers, this is what you should tell, um, uh, this is what you should tell to my master, to Esau. And already in that, we can see that the tactic is, he's using is he's telling his brother, I consider you my superior, uh, and therefore I'm um, inferior to you, I'm subservient to you. Uh, and that's already conveying a, a sign of, you know, in a sense, weakness. I'm not here to beat you in battle. I'm here simply to, uh, uh, you know, to come back to the country where I was born with my family, but you're in charge. This is what your servant, in fact, the word Ebed in Biblical Hebrew doesn't mean servant, it means slave. This is what your slave, Yaakov, says. I lived with Lovon. You know Uncle Lovon? I've been living with him in Choron for the last uh, few decades. And it's taken me all this time to get here. And Rashi says, it's a very famous, well-known Rashi, it's often quoted, Garti b'gematria tariag. Garti 
is the same numerical value in Hebrew because you know every letter in Hebrew has a numerical value. Garati is in fact interchangeable, it's the same letters. Garati is Tariag, 613. We know from the Gemara in Makkus, at the end of Makkus, Dorash Rabbi Simloi, how many mitzvahs are there in the Torah? There are 613 mitzvahs. Kaloima im lovon harosha garati, I lived with the wicked uh, lovon. He was such a wicked man, a person who did every sin possible, every sin imaginable. But tariag mitzvah shamarati, and nevertheless I observed 613 mitzvahs. So he is conveying a very important message to his brother that I have been untainted and untarnished by my sojourn in Choron together with Uncle Lovon. I never learnt from his evil ways. So this is the message that he instructs the messengers that Jacob, Yaakov Avinu, instructs the messengers to give to his brother Esau. Now, says the Mikdash Halevi, of course, this uh, year, this year we're focusing very much on the parish of my grandfather, Rav Yosef Tzviduna, and his Sefer Mikdash Halevi. Now imagine Esau was a very righteous individual, somebody who never done anything wrong. He's a person who has a lot of Yiras Shamaim. Uh, he has a, a, a complete and utter respect and awe for Hashem. We can perfectly then understand why it is that Yaakov Avinu would have wanted to convey, to let him know this information, that he had observed all these mitzvahs. Of course, Esau's a tzaddik, he's going to understand that even though Yaakov Avinu lived in the house of Lovon, nevertheless he kept all the mitzvahs. You see, you're a tzaddik, I'm a tzaddik, we're all still tzaddikim, but you know how hard it must have been for me to remain a tzaddik in the house of Lovon, because you know what it means to be a tzaddik, and therefore you're going to understand what Mesir Snefesh, the incredible amount of effort I had to put into remaining at the standard and the level that I was before I left. Ulam, the tzarenu, ha'uvdois yuduois. The fact is, we all know, was Esau such a big tzaddik? He wasn't a tzaddik at all. Esau loy hoya tzaddik tomim. He wasn't a tzaddik like Yaakov. He wasn't even close to that. He wasn't even similar to being a tzaddik tomim. He was one of the most wicked men in all of human history. He's the, at least in the way he's presented to us in the Torah. He's the paradigm of evil. He's a rasha. What difference is it going to make to him to hear that Yaakov Avinu observed Tariag Mitzvah in the house of Lovon? It's a wonder. It's absolutely uh, flabbergasting. Why did Yaakov even bother trying to impress him with regard to his observance of the Torah and of mitzvahs that he had done in the house of Lobo? What difference does it make? Is it, you know, if somebody has no value in the thing that you value, by telling them how valuable it is and how much of it you have, you're not going to impress them because they have no value in that. They don't perceive that value. As far as Esau was concerned, to know that Yaakov Avinu observed Tarek Mitzvahs in Lovon's house would have no meaning whatsoever, no value, and he had no concept of the mysterious Nefesh that was required because as far as he was concerned it doesn't matter at all. The Nira Loima says the Mikdash Shalevi, in which case we have to try and explain it in a slightly different way. So, the thing is that this whole exercise of sending messengers to Esau was because Yaakov Avinu imagined that if he was successful, that if somehow 
the, um, the fraternal love would re-emerge between him and Esau, that it was because Esau is going to want to make peace with him completely, is going to be, want to be utterly at peace with his brother, and what's going to happen as a result of that? That from now on they're going to live together in close proximity to each other. Next door, they're going to be next door neighbors. And in fact, we see that Esau um, suggested later, And we see that Esau, in fact, wanted somehow to have this level of reconciliation between him and his brother. Yaakov um, foresaw this, understood that this might be an outcome of the reconciliation between him and Esau, and therefore he wanted to make sure that he jumped ahead of the wagon here, and that he was on top of the situation, and he, he, he sent the information to Esau, you know who I am? Do you know what I am, Esau? Let me tell you who I am. I lived in Lovon's house, and I still remain true to my ideals true to what, what I always wanted to be and what I knew I should be. Despite the fact that I lived in Lovon's house, I'm still nothing like you. I'm not the Russia that Lovon is. I'm not the Russia that Esau is. I am still Yaakov. I'm the same Yaakov, the Ishtom Yosheva Holim, with without any level of compromise whatsoever. therefore, in which case you're going to understand, we can be friends, but we'll have to be friends apart, brothers apart. We can't be brothers together. And whatever peace will exist between the two of us, it will exist because we're not close to each other, but because we have distance between us. That's the first lesson that we can draw out of the message, the message that Yaakov Avinu sent with the Malachim that he, uh, that he dispatched to Esau in anticipation of meeting him for the first time in so many years. Here we have, it continues further. Now there's another bit of a problem here. Uh, in fact, my grandfather in his Sefer, the Mikdash Halevi, doesn't actually address this question directly, but what he's going to say now is going to answer this question as well. One of the questions that's come up over the years, and by the way, I once gave a whole share on this, and you can, you can find it uh, on my YouTube channel, or you can find it on the SoundCloud channel, I gave a whole share on the fact that Yaakov Avinu said, as Tariag mitzvah shamarti, I observe 613 mitzvahs. We all know it's not possible for anybody, even in the time of the Beis Amikdosh, to observe 613 mitzvahs. I'm not going to go into the details now of how uh, and that's the case, but certainly before the Torah was given, and if you don't live in Eretz Yisrael, and we know that Yaakov Avinu was living in Chutzlaret, he was living in Choron, it's not possible to keep 613 mitzvahs. And so the Mephorashim ask in different ways and address the problem in, in, in slightly different ways. But they ask the same question, which is, what does this medrash mean by comparing the, the, the word garti to taryag, by having this correlation between the number 613, which is the value of the word garti, and the number of mitzvahs that there are to observe in the Torah. What exactly did Yaakov Avinu keep that he was suggesting, at least in the words of the Madrash, that he observed 613 mitzvahs? So just keep that at the back of your mind because this next piece in the Mikdash Alevi is going to answer that question as well. So Rashi said, Garti eloger. So the word Garti, what does it mean? Garti means I lived 
but I didn't live in any kind of permanent way. I was always an outsider, I was always a guest. In love on Garty, I was an outsider, uh, even though he was at home, and even though I became his son-in-law, in love on Garty. It was always a kind of temporary situation. I was not made into a prince, I was not made into a ruler, I didn't become anything special. In love on Garty, I was not a Tsar, I wasn't Choshuv, Eloger, I was a Ger. Therefore, it's not worthwhile for you to hate me. I'm not at the, in the status that anybody should have any animosity towards me. I'm a nothing. I'm a no one. I am insignificant. Because you know that Father blessed me. And you think that the blessings conveyed to me some type of superhero status that I'm going to come back and I'm going to lord it over you. I'm not Tsar. I'm not Choshuv. I'm nothing special. You think that the fact is I was given a blessing that I should be a Gvir. I should be somehow superior to my brother. I'm not superior in the slightest. I'm, I'm even less than I was when I left. I, I lived with Lovon for so many years, in Lovon Garti, and I remained a Ger. I wasn't a Tsar, I never became Choshev, and therefore it's not worthwhile hating me because of the brochas that I got, because obviously they weren't Makuyam, they never came about. Sharei Loiniskai Mobi, these brochas that I received from Father never actually became, uh, came to anything, and here I am, Yaakov Avinu, a Ger. Okay, that's, that's the first message of Rashi. This we already mentioned in the first piece that we read from the Mikdash Alevi. Uh, I, uh, we know that Garti is the same numerical value as Taryag, 613. I lived with love on the wicked. Nevertheless, I observed um, the Taryag mitzvahs. I never learned from his wicked ways. I stayed on top of my game as far as my uh, Torah observance is, mitzvah observance is concerned. Now, what's going to happen here is my, my grandfather hitting the Sefer segues into an examination of the actual um, verb that's used here. What is the word that, that Yaakov Avinu uses, or at least that Rashi, quoting the Medrash, uses with re reference to Yaakov Avinu's mitzvah observance when he lived in the house of Lavan? If you look at Rashi's um, wording, what are you going to see? He doesn't say that Yaakov Avinu um, did, that he fulfilled the mitzvahs, the 613 mitzvahs. The word we always use to translate the word shama is to observe, to guard. But you're going to see that the word shama means slightly, something slightly different. But we always talk about somebody being mitzvah observant, right? They observe mitzvahs. Look at my grand, the way my grandfather puts it in his sefer. How, how do we refer to people who are, who does all the mitzvahs? What do we say about them? They are called shomer Torah or mitzvahs. We don't say that they are people who are mekayim Torah or mitzvahs. We say that they are shomer Torah or mitzvahs. A shomer Torah or mitzvahs is somebody we refer to in the, in, in, in the modern form in Yiddish. We say somebody is from. What does that mean? He's a shomer Torah. He's a shomer mitzvahs. Shmiras ha-mitzvahs. We don't talk about kiyum ha-mitzvahs. It's not something that we ever use as the verb to refer to somebody who observes mitzvahs. It's somebody, just an interesting point that the Mikdash HaLevi raises as a result of the wording of Rashi, because what does it say? Im lovon garti, 
Vestariag mitzvahs shamarti. Shamarti. Not garti, not um, kiyamti, shamarti. I didn't learn from his bad ways. That's it. You know, there's an important message here. Uh, in fact, it's a crucial message. It, and it's something which is so deep and so profound. And it's so important for us to take on board. What does it mean to be a Shomer Torah Mitzvah? What is the implication of the concept of Shmiras Torah Mitzvah? It's absolutely not the same. It's not parallel. It's not identical with the verb that you might have used of kiyum Torah mitzvah. That's not the same thing at all. Shmira and kiyum are two different things. Kiyum ha-Torah. What does kiyum ha-Torah actually mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means, It means obedience to the instructions of the Torah. The Torah says, do this, do it in this particular way, and you do it. You just, you're following orders. In the same way as uh, any citizen of a country will keep the laws of that particular country. There's no investment in it. For example, I always use motoring analogies. You get to a red light and you stop. There's no investment in that law. You just, you live in a country where there are traffic lights. You're driving a car and you're going to follow whatever the codes are, whatever the laws are with reference to driving your car on the road, on a public road, on a public highway. You're going to make sure you follow those rules. That's what kiyum mitzvahs would mean. But aside from that, putting that to the side, there's something more when it comes the connotation of the concept of Shmiras Torah Mitzvah is something else completely. We're going to see in Pashas Vayeshev that Yosef had a couple of dreams. And in those dreams, various things happened. And his brothers were very skeptical. In fact, it caused them to hate him. And the reaction of Yaakov is recorded with the following words. What does that mean? It can't mean guard. It can't mean observe. So Rashi explains, Perish Rashi, Shomar es hadovar, hoyo mamtin umetzape masayovoi. Do you know what the word Shomar means in that context? That Yaakov Avinu, who knew what, what the dreams he understood, he was a dream interpreter, he understood what it meant. He was waiting and looking forward to the moment that these events would occur that Yosef Avinu would be the great Yosef that was predicted in the dreams where all the other brothers would somehow would pay tribute to him, as indeed was the case uh, when it came to Parshas Vayigash. But this, at this moment in time, it hadn't happened yet. It was still only a prophecy that had emanated out of Yosef Hatzadik's dreams. The Oviv Shomar Esadovar. That's what the word Shomar means. It means Mamtin waiting eagerly, anticipating the moment when those things would occur because he knew that they would. Koloma, now we understand what the word Shomer means in the context of mitzvahs. Shomer Torah mitzvahs? Hinu mishe mamtin umetzape mosai tovai mitzvah Do you know what a Shomer Torah mitzvahs means? It means somebody 
who's waiting and anticipating every single, single second of the day. When can I do the next mitzvah? When will the opportunity arise for me to do a mitzvah? How, how can I go about my day in such a way that I could perform another mitzvah and another mitzvah and another mitzvah? Mamtin umetzapeh, that's what it means. The kachoya Yaakov Avinu Esav, that's exactly what Yaakov Avinu did. And this is what he said to Esav. That's exactly the message he sent to Esav. Do you know who I am? Imlovangarti. Do you know what that means, Esav? It means Taryag Mitzvah Shamarti. I observed, I was Shoimer. Tariag mitzvah, 613 mitzvahs. Of course I couldn't keep every single one of them because I lived before the Torah was given. I lived before the Torah is given. And I lived in Choram, which is not an Eretz Yisrael, but it doesn't, ma- doesn't matter. There's still so many mitzvahs I can keep and who knows what opportunity is going to come up. Tariag mitzvah shamati was on the tip of my tongue. It was at the edge of my finger in every moment of every day. I want to keep a mitzvah. I want to keep another mitzvah. I want to keep as many mitzvahs as possible. I never learnt from the wicked ways of Lavon. I never became like my father-in-law. I awaited and anticipated all day, every day. When will a mitzvah be available for me to do? When will the opportunity arise for me to do a mitzvah so that I can fulfill and carry out the commands of my Creator? We'll move on to the next piece in Mikdash HaLevi. The message that he told his Malachim to give to Esau continued. He said as follows, say to him as follows, your servant Yaakov, your slave Yaakov, is behind us. Ki Omar. And he said, he reasoned, If I apologize to you, Esau, with a gift, and the gift is, you're going to get it before we meet, before I even reach you. And afterwards, we'll see your face. Maybe then, when he sees me, Esau will see me, he's going to be nice to me. The idea being, I'm sending you a gift, you haven't seen me yet, but you see, I'm, I'm trying to appease you, I'm trying to apologize to you. And through that, when you do see me, you're going to be softened, you're not going to be so angry with me because I'll already have paved the way for our reconciliation, for our re- relationship to be stronger and warmer. If you look at the language of the Posuk, this idea of you're going to see, if we look at it in, in, uh, a little bit better, we're going to see that there's great depth, there's great meaning to this phrase, we can be absolutely certain. Let's be perfectly frank. You can listen to the other share when you want to. Yaakov Avinu had nothing really to apologize for. I know that he had hurt Esau's feelings and Esau was very upset. But it's not true that every time somebody's feelings are hurt that they're correct and that they are justified. 
and we know that Aesop, in fact, wasn't justified. He'd forgotten, perhaps, what had happened originally, although he reminded himself of it after Jacob got the brachas. He'd forgotten that he wasn't the one who was meant to be receiving the brachas. Do you know why? Because he sold his firstborn status to Yaakov many, many years earlier. Do you know Yaakov Avinu took nothing from Esau that wasn't his in the first place? He didn't do anything bad to him. The fact is, he took what was rightfully his. The brochos that he got from his father, Yitzchok. The Mirmas, you're going to say, you know what, he took them through trickery. You know why? It was the only way he was going to get them. And the only way he could receive them was by somehow circumventing the situation that has arisen as a result of Yitzchok aiming the brochos towards Esau instead of giving them to the person uh, to whom they rightfully belonged, which was Yaakov. The brochos were due to him according to the letter of the law. Do you know what? Esau had sold his firstborn status to Yaakov Avinu totally free will. He wasn't forced. He was hungry. He wanted a bit of lentil soup. And Yaakov Avinu said, give me the Bechoira. And he said, sure, what do I need it for? I don't care about it. I don't want it. And he gave it to him. And they exchanged the Bechoira for some lentil soup. And therefore the brochus were rightfully Yaakov's. We know that as the Bechoira was perfectly within his rights for Yaakov Avinu to receive the brochus from Yitzchak and not Esau. Okay, so we know that he had nothing to apologize for. So the concept of a chapra ponov bamincha seems to be hyperbolic at best. We need to understand what was it that Yaakov Avinu was trying to convey by using this phrase. Venira she Yaakov yoda hetev she'ein kol sikui l'choy l'chshinu mahusi begishosei shel Esav klapov. You know what, Yaakov Avinu knew full well that there was absolutely no chance for him to generate any kind of change, meaningful change of attitude by Esau with regard to him. And we knew that Esau's not changing. Esau somehow is, is who he is and uh, his attitude towards Yaakov isn't really going to change. Fundamentally, it's not going to change. Yaakov Yaakov understood that the only chance that he had the only thing that he could achieve in this so-called confrontation that's about to happen was to get Esau to pretend that he liked him. That's the only chance he has. That somehow, some kind of temporary change, a superficial change, it's not permanent. That's what he could achieve. In this moment in time, Esau's going to say, I love you and give you a hug, and that's what's going to happen. But to, to imagine that there's going to be a long-term change, in Esau's attitude towards Yaakov, that was inconceivable. Ulam, die ye hey boy. 
would be enough if that happened to all that Yaakov needed to achieve to save himself from the grave danger that was hovering over him and his family at that particular moment in time. So we see here that the goal was to create a temporary window of time when Esau would be in, on good terms with Yaakov, that there would be a peace of sorts between Esau and Yaakov. Lefichoch and therefore my Yaakov. Achapra ponov bamincha. How am I going to do that? Achapra ponov bamincha. He said it to him straight out. He said to Esau, at this particular moment in time, I'm going to send you gifts and I'm going to, there's going to be an, an exchange here where it's a bit of a one-way street. I'm going to give you a lot of stuff. I'm going to make you, make you feel really, really good right now. What, what does the word achapro mean? Achapro, we said, means apologize, appeasement, somehow creating a, a, a total change of relations. But you know the Hebrew language is so elastic and you can use a word and change its meaning through drush, but sometimes even in pshat. What does the word achapro mean? Hinumiloshoin kapoires. What does the word kapoires mean in Hebrew? means a cover, a lid. Haloi hi It covers, it covers up something. We know that when you put a cover on a pot, it doesn't change anything about the pot. It just means that there's a cover on top of whatever is inside the pot, right? That's what it means. He knew that what he's doing now by creating this situation, I'm covering up the situation by giving you gifts, by making you feel good, by creating a sense of friendship between us at this particular moment in time. We're creating a bit of a mirage, a mirage of positive relations. What was the purpose of the gift? The purpose of it was only, I don't think that Esau was stupid, he understood it. It was only to cover up the true feelings that lay at the heart, at the very core of who Esau was, towards Yaakov. And it was just to convince him temporarily to cover up, to put a disguise on his face. To cover up, to, to, to obscure what was really going on inside, what he truly felt towards his brother Yaakov. We see that this intent, this um, goal of Yaakov Avinu was utterly successful. It says in the Posuk, the Posuk says when they finally met, how does it describe that meeting? Vayorotz Esav likrosay. Esav ran towards Yaakov. Vayichabakehu. Vayipalal tzavorei. He kissed him and he fell on his neck. He hugged him. Vayishokehu. And he and he kissed him. Vayivku and he cried. Vakosav Rashi. Vayishokehu. Says Rashi. Do you know what the word Vayishokehu means? Nukud olav. There's dots on the word Vayishokehu. It's always a bit of a code. Whenever you have dots on a word in the Torah, when the official text of the Torah uh, insists that dots are placed over the letters, 
says Rashi, that means that when he kissed him, he didn't kiss him with all his heart. He didn't mean it, really, really mean it. At that moment in time, that's what he did. Amar Rav Shimon ben Yochai. Rav Shimon ben Yochai adds as follows. Halacha hi is a well-known fact. Here he's speaking about the individuals, but he's also talking about generally the, the relationship between Esau and Yaakov, between those who are of the family or the disposition of Esau and Yaakov and those who are the descendants of Yaakov who are true to Yaakov's legacy. Halachahu. Halachahi. It is a law. It is immutable. Beyodua. And it's well known. Esau soinali Yaakov. Esau and Esau's hate Yaakov and Yaakov's. There can be no reconciliation between the two. They are polar opposites. They repel each other. They cannot come together as one. Esau soinali Yaakov. So what happened at that moment in time, says Rabbi Shimba Yochai, He was overcome with emotion at that particular moment in time. In that moment in time, it was fleeting. He kissed him with all his heart. And from this, we know for certain. It's absolutely explicit. The only thing that Yaakov intended to achieve, and in fact that's what he achieved, was to create this superficial, external situation of love and affection and relationship between him and Esau. Even if it wasn't with a full heart and it wasn't totally heartfelt. And even according to the opinion, and we saw Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai who says he did kiss him at that moment in time with all his heart. This, it was certainly not Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai says. It was that moment in time. It was It wasn't something that was going to be retained. It wasn't going to remain. It wasn't permanent. Ella. Peretz Regoi was at the spur of the moment, the Choilef, and it was in passing. The success that Yaakov had in his attempt to have an influence on Esau, it wasn't total, it wasn't complete, it wasn't permanent, it wasn't sustainable. He knew that this was the absolute maximum that he that was possible for him to achieve. And that's why he didn't strive to do any more. And that's what it means when it says in the Posuk, Ponov Bamincha, that uh, it's a kapoires, it's a cover, it's a mirage, it's a disguise. It's nothing more than that. At that moment in time, that's what, all that was needed, and that's what he managed to achieve. And one more piece from the Mikdash Halevi, a beautiful piece. And he took at that particular moment in time his two wives and his two concubines and the 11 children he'd already had. Um, he hadn't had yet uh, Binyamin, although you're going to see in a minute there were 12 children. And he, uh, he traversed Mavar Yabuk, which was a brook uh, that separated him from the other side, which was where Eretz Canaan was. Upirish Rashi and Rashi explains there's Achad Osi of his 12 children. It doesn't say Bonov, it says Achad Osi Yelodov, his 12 children. Vadina 
Heichon Hoysa. There was a twelfth child. Who is the twelfth child? A daughter called Dina. We know that she existed. Where was she? Why, it say, why doesn't it say, Yelodov. Nasna Bateva Benal Befanel. Do you know what he did to her? He hid her in a box. Shalayitain Ba Esav Einov. So the Esav wouldn't see her. Velokach Nenash Yaakov. And you know what? Yaakov Avinu was punished for this. Shemon Ame Echov. Shema Tachzirenu Lemutav. Venoflo Beyad Shechem. He prevented her from seeing his brother, and maybe she would have been successful in turning him away from his bad ways. She would have turned him from a Russia into a tzaddik, and therefore as a result of him preventing that from potentially happening, from Esau marrying his niece Dina, do you know what happened? She was taken by Shechem and that whole story happened. Unbelievable, isn't it? What an unbelievable thing to say that the reason that Shechem happened was Yaakov's fault because Yaakov should have allowed Esau to see Dina and then Dina might have married Esau and then Esau would have become a good person. Really? Is, does that make any sense to you? Does it make any sense at all? That's what the Mikdash HaLevi is going to address. Divrei Rashi HaMuvusosim al-Divrei HaMedrash Khan Rashi's Pshat which is of course based on a chazal, we really need to go into them in greater detail. We need to understand what Rashi is trying to teach us. No one could be in any doubt that Yitzchok and Rivka, maybe the most righteous people of all time, right? Yitzchok, Yitzchok, the son of Avram Avinu, and Rivka, his wife, two fantastic people. Don't you imagine that they did everything that they could to educate, to improve the behavior of their son, Esau? Can you imagine they did anything different? Do you think they approved of him? No, of course not. They had tremendous agmas nefesh from his behavior. They did everything that they could to make sure that he was a much better person than he became. And return him when he went off in the wrong direction to return him back to the correct path. But nobody's in any doubt of the ultimate outcome of the situation. That which they sought, in other words, trying to improve him, to make him a better person, it didn't happen. We know that Aesop never changed his ways. He never became a good person. It never happened. Rivka, Yitzchok, put all the effort and the energy into making their son a better person, but it didn't happen in Cain. Now, if that's the case, that Yitzchok and Rivka were unsuccessful, how strange. How would we even, even come into our heads that Dina, who is the granddaughter of Yitzhak and Rivka, I mean, a younger generation, right? He's the next, she's the next generation down after Esau. How would we even think, how do we think that she would be successful in doing something that they had failed at? Why would it even occur to us, or to the Medrash, I should say,
that she would be successful in returning Esav to the correct path. Do you know what she was? She was a young girl. So what's going on here? Why is Jacob being penalized? Why is somehow he's being criticized for the fact that he didn't allow Dina to come into proximity to Esau because Esau might have taken her? Because you know what? Esau might have become a better person as a result. Really? Is that what's going on in our minds? If Yitzhak and Rivka weren't successful, of course Yaakov wasn't successful, no one was successful, everybody had failed, but Dina, she's the one that's going to change the situation. Really? It sounds completely and utterly ridiculous. Says the Mikdash HaLevi, do you know what the answer is? Anything that is with regard to a lost soul, and perhaps this medrash is fanciful, that seems to be the undercurrent here. The medrash is fanciful, it's hyperbolic. But it wants to convey to us a very important message. When we're talking about lost souls, You can never, ever lose hope, even the slimmest of chances. Even some minor opportunity that might exist that could turn things around and get that lost soul back to where it needs to be, you could invest all your hope into it. Despite the fact that Yitzhak and Rivka were completely unsuccessful in all their attempts to educate Esau, they had no success whatsoever. Nevertheless, Yaakov Avinu, at least according to the Medrash, and perhaps it's fanciful, hyperbolic, exaggerated, but Yaakov Avinu should have given Esau a chance. He should have at least given Esau the chance, the opportunity to improve, even to the extent it seems, sounds like from the Medrash, to use his daughter as bait. It sounds almost ridiculous, but the Medrash wants to convey an important Musser point. It's not about Yaakov per se, of course it is. It's about the investment that you need to make in a lost soul and how important it is. Well, Hamin was for Yaakov Avinu to believe, to have faith. That even young Dina, she has a chance, she has an opportunity, she might just be able, through her charm, through the way she interacted with Esau, to bring him back on board. Wouldn't have that been amazing? That's what the Medrash wants to teach us. He should have made this extra effort and seeing as he didn't do that he didn't make that extra effort he's held responsible for it he was punished for it that's what the Medrash wants to say continues the Mikdash HaLevi do you know what the takeaway is here? what's the educational takeaway? It's chadu borrow, it's singular, it's clear. There are times when we're ready to give up. We've got a kid, 
a member of our family, somebody, and they're just not doing the right thing. And we're ready to be misyayish. We're ready to completely give up. Lahorim yodayim bechinuchay, to wash our hands from his chinuch, shal yelad from this kid or that kid or whatever it is. We've decided it's just not worth it. Why are we wasting our time? Ulam miparshazu anulaimdim. Do you know what we learn from this episode? Ki ein hatzdoka letzaid me'en zebashum oifen. There is absolutely no, this is just not the right way. This is not the right approach. This is not the correct path when it comes to chinuch, to ever give up on somebody. Tiena nesiva sasha tiena, whatever, whatever the challenges may be, whatever the outcome may be, whatever the ultimate result is, we have to make the effort. We have to be willing to take even the remotest chance that the thing that we're going to do is going to turn it all around. Even if we're talking about somebody who we could say, he's a Russia. He's like Esau. He's wicked. There's no salvation here. No. Even after we've exhausted all what we think are the available options, with regard to bringing that person back. There's still more things we can do. It's another day, it's a week later, it's a month later, it's a year later. Try again. Keep on trying. Never give up. There's still a chance. You might just make a breakthrough. You didn't try this particular method. You didn't try and introduce him to that particular person. You never sent him this book or introduced him to some concept or her, of course, to change things round. Kitomid yesh sikui, says the Mikdash Shalevi. Don't ever imagine that there's no solutions. Don't ever imagine that the outcome is a foregone conclusion. There's no such thing. When it comes to chinuch, when it comes to education, there's no such thing as sufficient effort. You can never say, I've done enough. You can never do enough. We have to put in the maximum level of effort when it comes to chinuch. And if it didn't work today or this week or this year, Next year is another year. It's another opportunity. It's a new teacher. It's a new, whatever it is. The circumstances have been slightly changed. The pieces on the chessboard are not quite the same. And now another opportunity exists. Pounce on it. Use it. And maybe that's the thing that's going to change everything. She'ein lo gvul v'shir. Chinuch has no boundary. And there is no shear. There's no measure to what can be achieved when it comes to changing things round for your child, for your son, for your daughter, for your brother, for your sister, for whoever it is in the community that you come into contact with. That is the lesson from the Medrash about Dina hidden in the box. We will leave it, leave it here for today. Thank you so much. Thank you.